Welcome, everyone. Thank you that you didn't join the celebration in the street, but came here into the market theatre for this translation duel. Um, thank you to Modern Poetry in Translation for collaborating with Ledbury Poetry Festival to make this happen. Um, and also thank you, as always, to the Arts Council for their continuing support to the festival and also to Alison and Nigel Foles for sponsoring this particular event. Now, I'll keep my introduction very brief. I'll only introduce you briefly to Sasha Duckdale, who is a poet, a playwright, and a translator. She's author of three poetry collections, The Estate, Notebook, and Red House. And she has translated Russian poetry and drama, including my favorite play, Anton Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. As editor of the magazine Modern Poetry and Translation, she is immersed in world poetry, and I really love a quote that I found by Zasha. She says, reading poetry in other languages is like a vitamin injection. English suddenly seems bigger and richer, and I itch to write again. So today, Sasha is hosting this translation duel with two award-winning translators, Olivia McCannon and Susan Wicks. Both will fight for their translation of a poem by contemporary French poet Ariane Dreyfus that you find and, uh, on this really beautifully made leaflet. I hope you all got one when you came in. And well, I'll hand over to Sasha now. I'm really eager to learn more about the translation process. Join me in giving a warm welcome to all three of them. Thank you very much for coming today. It's Sunday, pretty much Sunday lunchtime, so I think it's an extraordinary act of, of bravery to come out for a, a bit of bloodletting at Sunday lunch. Um, and, but I'm, I'm very delighted to see you all. I'd like to thank the Ledbury Festival for collaborating with us on this translation duel. It's the second one that Modern Poetry and Translation has hosted and I suppose conceived. The first one last year at the Winchester Poetry Festival uh, was, was a, a duel over a German language poet and we thought it would be really fantastic to try the same thing again but with a French language poem this year at Ledbury Festival. We made up leaflets uh, uh, for the Winchester Poetry Festival, and they were so successful that we've um, repeated the format. Um, and you all have a leaflet there. And it's just worth taking a few seconds to um, kind of accustom yourself to the layout. It's got a very beautiful poster for your kitchen notice board. And that poster has both versions of the, both translations, I should say, of the original French poem on it. And on the other side, there's a, the French poem, the, the poem, the original poem in French, and also some very beautiful commentaries by Susan and Olivia um, about their approaches to the poem. You've also find the, the biographies of the poet um, Ariane Dreyfus and the two translators today. And before I start, I would like very briefly to tell you a little bit more about Susan and Olivia. Um, they're both um, extraordinary translators of French poetry. Uh, you may have read Susan Wicks's amazing translations of Valerie Rousseau, Talking Ruse, um, and um, Cold Spring in Winter, really remarkable. We were lucky enough to publish a few of those translations in Modern Poetry and Translation. In fact, in my, the first issue I edited, and they're just so fantastically experimental and joyous. Um, it, they're real joy, a real joy to read. Um, Olivia McCannon is um, a wonderful poet. She was uh, shortlisted for the um, Seamus Heaney Centre Prize, and she won the 2012 Fenton Audubon First Collection Prize for her collection, Exactly My Own Length, uh, which is, which is a, a really beautiful collection published by Carcanet Oxford Poets. Um, but she is also a tr French translator in her own right, and has translated, among other things, um, Balzac's Old Man Goriot for Penguin Classics, which is a genuine labor of love, if there ever was one. And Ariane Dreyfus, who is the um, invisible presence at today's reading. In just a minute, we'll hear her read her own poem, but um, unfortunately, she couldn't be here for, for this event. She's published 13 collections of poetry, and um, the most, um, including La Durée des Plantes, which, and Le Inhabitable, please forgive my French accent, 
and that was awarded the Prix de Découvreurs in 2007. And she's a poet, I don't think, who's been much translated into English. So one of the wonderful things about this translation, Jewel, is my hope, at least, that this will lead to her being more widely translated and more widely available in English language for English language readers. So we're going to listen now to Ariane reading the poem Rien n'empêche d'autres oiseaux. Again, big apologies. In a minute, Olivia and Susan will put everyone right with French accents. Um, and if you'd like to turn to the page with the French on it, if you do um, speak and read French, um, it's a, a useful resource. You can read along as Ariane reads the original French. Have you all found that? Before we listen. Ok, Greg, let's hear Ariane. Rien n'empêche d'autres oiseaux. Elle s'arrête quand l'eau lui arrive à la taille. Regarde, avance à nouveau. Et la mer infinie la suit. Traîne qu'elle sent à peine. La robe, elle l'imagine. S'efface ses omoplates de petites filles à chaque fois qu'elle lève les coudes et se hausse, car il fait froid. Mais l'eau est calme, pas embêtante. Frileux, les autres sont restés derrière. C'est donc un instant de princesse. Elle baisse les yeux, mais pas la tête, à cause de sa couronne qui pourrait tomber. Regarde comment ses pieds glissent sur le sable. Parce qu'il est très loin, les jambes ont grandi. Elles se tordent à plein de reflets. Le soleil y va en profondeur. Et plus en profondeur, la pointe des pieds pour aller jusqu'au sol intouché. L'eau, presque à la poitrine, elle étire ses bras. Ainsi flottent les mains. Puis s'allonger. Sinon, comment voir que le ciel donne un si grand vertige et les nuages en forme de personnes. What a stunning reading. That was so beautiful. I'm now going to um, invite um, Livy, Olivia McCannon and Susan Wicks to read their translations of Ariane's poems. Olivia first. How else to see the sky? She stops when the water touches her waist, looks out, sets off again, and the limitless sea trails her, a train she wears lightly, sensing the dress. Gone her little girl's shoulder blades whenever she lifts her elbows to draw herself up because it's freezing. But the water is calm, it lets her be. Too hot to get cold, the others have stayed behind. This, then, is her moment. Princess, she lowers her eyes, but not her head, on account of the crown that might fall off. Look at the way her feet go gliding across the sand. Because it's so far down, legs must grow long. They twist away kicking up glitter. The sun reaches there where it's deep. Deeper still, the tips of toes searching for the untouched ground. Water almost to her chest, she holds out arms to make floating hands. Then she's stretching out. How else to see the sky spinning round? The clouds, the shape of somebody, nobody. No reason why are the birds. She stops when the water reaches to her waist and looks, goes on again, and the endless sea follows her, a train she hardly feels. The dress in her mind's eye 
erased. Her shoulder blades are little girls each time she lifts her elbows and stands up on tiptoe. For it's cold, though the water's not unpleasant, calm. The other shiverers have stayed behind, so it's a princess moment. She lowers her eyes, but not her head because of her crown, which might fall off, and looks at how her feet are sliding on the sand. Because it's very far away, her legs have grown. They twist inside the ripples. Sun goes there, deep down, and deeper still, her toes trying to reach the untouched ground. The water almost to her chest, she spreads her arms. So this is how hands float. Now to stretch out, or else how can you see the sky makes you so giddy and the person shapes of clouds? translation jewel is that even if you don't translate and you don't know any other languages you get a sense of the infinite variety of choice that faces a translator when looking at a new poem and give it, I hope it gives new appreciation of the the skill and the art of translation so I thought we'd start with one of the most remarkable divergences between the two translations <laughs> and and that is the title I'll start, with, um, I'll start with Susan to, might, to talk a little bit about the title and how she chose the English title for her poem. Right, well, thank you. Well, it's, it looked to me like half of a proverb. Um, I mean, I could be wrong, but I looked it up online um, and I could find one reference to it which seemed to be the title of an online, of an online arts magazine, um, which was... Rien n'empêche d'autres oiseaux de se joindre au voilier. So um, nothing, preve uh, nothing prevents other birds from following the sailing boat, um, which to me conjured up all kinds of things, but specifically desire, really. Um, and um, made me aware, I think, of just how open the poem was and how without a title... Um, there are very many different interpretations that are all equally coherent. I mean, you could call it the awakening, um, and it could be about female responsibility and suicide. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, um, that's, that's what I went with, so no reason why other birds shouldn't join, shouldn't follow the sailing boat. Um, so to me, that was somebody's expression of desire. I don't know whose. I don't know whether it's the girl's or whether it's somebody else. I'll pass over to Livy, who went for a radically different. <laughs> I, um, I find it very hard to unpick the title. It seems so right for the poem. Um, just the kind of building blocks of it. It was like a sort of sequence of opening doors, kind of, you know, setting up endless questions. Um, I did, yeah, I... I there is a sort of proverbial tone to it, isn't it? You're right. And it's sort of also truncated. Um, and so I did have a look around and I was thinking, well, I didn't find your amazing, your amazing proverb, <laughs> which sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, but what I was interested in, mainly in the title, was this sense that you enter the poem um, through a sense of resistance to an implied norm. You know, no reason. So, so not, rien n'empêche, you've got nothing and then these, these other birds other birds to, to prevent or, yeah. um, so these, these other birds like well wow who are the other birds and who were the first birds you know <laughs> so there's some other birds and then the, the first birds are the kind of norm and then there's the other birds who are resisting it so I found that very interesting in the context of the poem but I didn't manage um, in the time to find 
um, something that I, I, I felt um, expressed that. And so I, I went looking through the poem to see if I could find another line that would kind of create the same, have the same kind of function, the same sort of texture, the same questioning and opening, and this sort of sense of resistance or defiance to something. So that's kind of <laughs> the direction that I went in. <laughs> and, and what's the, the, just to go back in case there is um, anyone who doesn't, doesn't um, read French, what is the actual literal meaning of the title? Like, well, it, if you break it down like in the literal, you know, rien, nothing, n'empêche, uh, this is a, a French negative, so rien ne, and then empêche with the verb. Nothing prevents, stops, would you agree? <laughs> uh, D'autres oiseaux, other birds. Yeah, so Susan, just, you know, pretty close. It's interesting that because it does come back, very, as, you'll, as you'll have felt from that discussion, very much to a sense of what lies behind the words, not just the words, but the sort of the, the, the tone or the sense of the poem behind the words. And I know that both Susan and Livy had amazing ideas and theories and feelings about the poem, and I was just going to ask them to talk a little bit about those. So I'll go back to Susan to start. Um, okay, well, well what um, struck me, first of all, really, was that this poem has two viewpoints. That it has the viewpoint of the watchers on the beach. Somebody is watching on the beach or they wouldn't be able to see the, the little girl's, I mean, the, the little girl shoulder blades. She may not be a little girl, but she's got the shoulder blades of a little girl. Um, and at the same time, there's the girl's own viewpoint. And that, to me, got more and more troubling and more and more ambiguous as I went on. I mean, is it the girl herself imagining herself being watched, feeling self-conscious, as I think Olivia felt it was, probably, to a certain extent? Um, or is it the person on the beach seeing that the girl is on the threshold of something really interesting and wishing she he or she, I think it's a she, could go there um, and kind of intuitive, intuitively espousing the girl's probable thoughts and experiences as she enters the water. Um, so, I mean, that, that was a big problem for me and I, I was sort of looking at the language quite closely, as I'm sure we both were, trying to gauge the age of the language, really to see whether we were inside the girl's head or inside the watcher's head. And I didn't really get any definitive answers, I don't think. Um, but anyway, that was where, that was what I was most preoccupied by, I think. How about you? It's, that was a really fascinating part of the poem, I agree. I spent a lot of time with, with that. I think, for me, what I felt was that the... Um, <clears throat> that there is, the reader has knowledge that the girl doesn't have. So we, we bring that perspective, but it's also in there because, you know, she's sort of out of her depth, isn't she? The toes reaching for the untouched ground and there's a sense of what's to come. And I think also the way the poem is um, sandwiched in the collection as well is sandwiched by those two poems which are from a High Wind in Jamaica with the character of Emily, which is also a novel about... Uh, yes, and I think that's interesting. I think that would be <clears throat> this idea of, you know, the, the people on the beach, you know, there's that strange... There's a, a masculine plural, which in French <laughs> can contain men and women, <laughs> or girls and boys. There's an amazing rule, which is that if there are, you know, 5,000 men in a, in a room, 5,000 women in a room, one man, then it would be <laughs> the masculine plural. Anyway, <clears throat> um, I don't know if it's quite that dramatic, actually. But, yeah, probably. But, um, yeah, I think that the that idea of the... Um, there's a, a mature women's perspective, definitely, in the poem, a sense of what's to come. And, you know, I, maybe I, I felt a sense of... Uh, maybe almost a, a sense of anger, actually, at this sort of sexualization of young girls, you know, just, just very, very subtly in the... Um, but I think what I got quite interested in also was, in relation to that, was... The, the relationship um, with body parts in French, you know, it's one of those things when you translate, you kind of go, okay, well, the, you know, in France, the um, possessive adjective agrees with the noun, so it has the gender of the noun, whereas in English, we give it the gender of the, the person who's, whose leg it is, for example. So, 
you know, if it's um, a leg, it would be feminine in French, but if it's in, in English, we go um, his leg or her leg. So we know whose leg it is, male or female. And we just say that for granted when we translate. We go, okay, in English we say this because it's a natural, naturally occurring effect in French. And, and I suddenly started looking at them, and it's a bit like when you focus on something a lot, it's like a hologram. <laughs> and, I was, and I was looking at these, um, this relationship with the body parts and thinking how interesting that was. Well, for example, you know, in the French... Um, uh, hang on, I'll just have a look at the French... Is that the French there? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so in French you say, you know, she, she lowers the eyes but not the head. That's an interesting one. And then if you have, regarde comment ses pieds, so feet um, in, a, in, a, in a plural form, you don't know what the gender of the noun is or what the gender of the person is who owns the feet. So <laughs> I just thought that was quite interesting because it kind of, if you just dwell on that, it kind of gives you a sort of sense of freedom, you know, like, oh, you could be liberated from the, <laughs> the gender of the thing, you know. Um, so I kind of played with trying to find um, ways to remove um, indicators of, of gender or, or subject in my translation, because I thought that was very interesting, because what the effect is, and they, also the, the use of the infinitives in the French to add to this, it's a kind of um, reassignment of function to the infinitives where the subject is um, emitted but inferred. The, the subject disappears. So she is, and that adds to this sense of, you know, she's in the sea, it's kind of this invisible resistance and sort of, you know, amazing sort of transparency. And there's this disappearing subject suspended in the sea. And I found that was kind of very liberating, sort of kind of freedom. Yeah. So I, I had to play around with all of that. Interestingly, I, was, I played Devil's Advocate by running it through Google Translate, and I think it said it stops, and then it said his legs and his, you know, everything that should have been her was his, which, which was surreal. You know, it made me think again about all those pronouns. It's actually a really fantastic topic because, of course, it isn't a, a sort of deliberate effect in the sense that she's mutating the language. It's something that just happens very naturally in French, and probably no French person would particularly notice that. But as a translator, you notice the peculiarities of language. And I was wondering if there was anything else in the poem that, that belonged to that category of normality in French, but peculiarity, if you stand outside it, that you can play on as a translator. Um, well, there's the last two lines, particularly, I think, the puis s'allonge, um, because it's completely impersonal in French. So she's obviously thinking, you know, now I'll lie back. But how do you translate that? Um, is it broader than just her I? Is it broader than the she? Um, you know, is it like an invitation to all of us? You know, this is what you do when you go in the water, when you get sort of up to about your chest, you lie back, or you go forward. Um, yeah. You're right, that's a, that's a wonderful infinitive at the end, isn't it? I sort of initially started off um, translating, then it's a case of stretching back, you know, that kind of sense of, I wasn't quite happy with that, but, but you're right, because there's no, you know, it's kind of so open, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah, that's the new rule, the new rule of the poem, because <laughs> you have to do it this way. You're, you're forced to make decisions um, that a French person reading the poem doesn't necessarily have to make when you're translating um, because implied things have to become sometimes stated um, in a different language. It's not possible to carry through it implication. And I was wondering if that occurred in this poem, and it, it obviously does, and whether you compensate in other ways or if there's any examples of that you can, you can give would like to. I feel as if I'm holding the sword here for this jewel. I'm just passing it to <laughs> who would like who would like the next <laughs> the next quick thrust. <laughs> we should talk about the last line, I think, because um, I mean Olivia translated this. I shouldn't say that you did it very, very well. I'm supposed to say, you know, um, yeah, I'm supposed to be consumed with jealousy. But Olivia managed to get in both implications because I, I looked at it for a long, long time and all my first drafts, about five drafts, had the no one shapes of clouds 
as the end because the personne is what you're left, is, is hanging at the end and you think no one. Um, and then I think I actually showed it to someone and they said, no, no, you go for the first sense. You know, the first sense is they just look like people. Um, and I thought, yeah, what I'm doing is illegitimate and where is that coming from? So then I tried to get the clouds at the end so that it would nevertheless imply that although they, they were in the shape of people, they were sort of empty. They had no content. Um, but it doesn't do what the French does. And Olivia's been daring enough to get to put, just go with it and put it. And I shouldn't say this, should I? I'm supposed to cover you with blood. <laughs> I, could, I could think of many places where I could pay the return compliment, and I might do it in a second. But just to come back to that line is just um, the, the somebody, nobody. I think you're absolutely right that the natural, the first heard sense naturally is, is person. And then you might think somebody, and then, but then nobody is there in the mix. But I think they kind of come chiming in like that. They kind of go, person, somebody, nobody, like that. So I just wanted to try and get them all in. <laughs> Somehow that was all. I just wondered if you just expand. The word in French is... Personne. And it means... Well, it depends what form of the verb, uh, what form of, form of the, the word is. Yes, if it's, if it's a pronoun, then it's a negative. If it's a noun, then it's person. Yeah. Person and no person, or no one. Yes, no yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> and it contains that within the word, which is really fantastic. So to have a word that says somebody and nobody <laughs> in the same word, and actually, you know, in terms of grammatical function, it can do either here, you know. <laughs> it's amazing, really. French is very good at ambiguity, I think, as a language. You know, it's fantastic at sort of pulling the rug out from under your feet and making everything kind of, you know... <laughs> in a very precise, brilliant way. <laughs> Are there any places, uh, Susan, where you compensated by adding ambiguity or by doing something in the English that wasn't there in the French but created the same overall effect in the poem or the same tone um, in the poem? See, I, d I don't think I did much. I think what happened was my early drafts did and were perhaps more daring and then I thought, no, this, is, this is, language is so transparent that I've got to protect this transparency and possibility of going, you know, being ambiguous in English as it is in French. And I had this problem particularly with un instant de princesse, um, which I think I'm sort of allergic to anyway, <laughs> um, slightly. Um, but, you know, all my... Earlier drafts have softened it, you know, so it's her moment. She's, she's a princess. She's imagining herself a princess. Um, and then I wasn't sure whether actually the person on the beach wasn't looking at her. You know, I sort of projected it on myself and saw myself looking at him and thinking, ah, oh, he's having a Darth Vader moment, you know, or something, or an Iron Man moment. And I could, you know, you could see it. Um, and I thought, yes, and maybe somebody on the beach is saying, yeah, she's thinking of herself as a princess now. So I kept it studiedly neutral, and I don't think it's quite poetic, but I also came across in an interview, um, a recent interview on this book, a bit by Ariane Dreyfus, where she says that um, a really beautiful poem always has glitches, always has, like, deep cuts in it and moments where it's tipping over into prose. Did you find that too, I guess? No. Um, and I thought, yeah, for me, this is the moment. This is the, a sort of hinge, that un instant de princesse, where it's tipping into prose so that later on it can take off into this strangeness. Um, but anyway, I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, think your, I think your translation was braver. I think that you paid all this amazing attention to that strangeness which is there in the French syntax. And I, I was really impressed with that. Um, and a bit jealous. <laughs> um, the, other, the other area where we diverged, and that's connected to what you were saying about the princess moment and this idea of watching, is that um, I translated as an imperative, look at the way her feet go gliding. And you translated as her looking at her feet. And both are possible. Yeah. <laughs> and I, when I looked at yours and I went, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. It could, her, it could be her looking at her feet. I hadn't, it's so funny you sometimes just get it stuck in your head that it's that way, you know. But I think for me, the way I, I sort of 
went for look at the way her feet go gliding because because of that sense you know when you and I, I think I identified I sort of slid into her skin at that point and went you know oh you know I'm in the sea and nobody's around <laughs> I get my sea dress on <laughs> and um, and that kind of play acting where you pl- I was looking at my daughter playing as well she's sort of three. It's that kind of looking at yourself doing something when you play as a child and look, look, look at the way her feet, you know, as if everyone's talking about her, you know, but she's imagining it in her head. So that was how I, I heard that line. Mm. It's funny, isn't it, how much, is, you know, the voice, the voice that you produce when you translate is the one that you hear in your head. So it's to do with listening, isn't it? It's sort of, I don't know, is that what you find? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I think we both probably felt that the voice modulated. Um, But I've put the visible modulation later than you have, which I've saved it for the end. And you've gone with her voice sooner. Um, But it does change somewhere. um, And you've got to pin down where. And it's it's quite difficult. (laughs) That's a really interesting thing about translation, that um, when you translate, you're not a kind of vessel through which the poem seamlessly moves into a sort of parallel existence in English, you are a voice and you're in a sort of debate with the poem. And I think you can probably see that there's been quite a lot of debate and struggle going on. And I know um, what both of you were saying, that the poem had changed quite a lot just in the repeated reading. And I was wondering if you could say something about that. I don't know um, whether there were things that you originally thought and then you came to a new understanding of. Particularly the viewpoint, in fact, that's really interesting, the idea that a poem can allow you to have several viewpoints. You can be the subject or you can be the narrator and the kind of um, onlooker. Um, And where you cite yourself as a translator might depend on your own life's experience and where you've most recently been. Um, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I just would say that I really identified with sort of those experiences on French beaches <laughs> when I was, you know, doing the French exchange and I was with all the, the, uh, the masculine plurals <laughs> on the beach. <laughs> and, um, you know, that sort of sense of awkwardness of, of people seeing in you a potential that you do not yet have in yourself, possibly. And, and um, I think that my reading was quite informed by that. And I also went quite heavily towards the sensing because I... Was, was, picture, was sort of sensing myself you know, in the sea and then the feelings of the sea. So I tw- tweaked things. I put the water touches her waist to kind of bring out sort of more tactile, uh, sensual kind of, um, you know, words. <clears throat> and also, you know, I went away from... Because, you know, Susan's translation is, um, is much better of the dress in her mind's eyes because in the French it's, it's pictured. But I decided that I was going to have a kind of sensing kind of imagining. And so I kind of twisted things around to make that, that, that work. And, you know, I think there's lots of places where you, where you play and you compensate. And I think that was very interesting, that line as well, the, the water is calm. And then that, that word, you know, embêtante, which is quite sort of childish. And it's kind of what you... Well, it means annoying, and it's a sort of word that children use, so if they go, arrête, tu m'embêtes, <laughs> you know, like, it's like that kind of sense, isn't it? It's slightly hassly, the connotation. Yeah, but as if she's been having a bit of hassle, you know, and I sort of felt like she'd come into the sea and, oh, you know, got away from the, the sort of... the expectations of those, of that group on the beach, whatever they were, the sex, the, you know, the sense that there was something she was escaping from. And, you know, I wrote in the commentary, escape as a form of resistance. I sort of felt very much this was a kind of a very sort of feminist poem and, you know, that she was striking out and finding something with greater depth as if she was um, contacting the sort of infinite and the feminine sublime and leaving behind the sort of, um, you know, earthbound expectations of that group on the beach. But like I said, I kind of tried to draw back from that because it seemed that maybe I was going a bit too, <laughs> a bit too personal. <laughs> so I kind of tried to sort of temper it as well. Yeah, I think the crucial line for me, or one of them, was le soleil va en profondeur. Um, 
Because it's so simple, and I found myself almost automatically thinking, what does sun do? You know, it pierces, it sort of penetrates the water. And then I think I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, no, it just says the sun goes there. She's looking down, and she's marveling. You know, she's looking at her legs. Well, the, how does the sun get there? You know, it's gone right down there. And I felt that I'd got to protect that transparency, that simplicity, um, and it was that that set up the end, really, that, that there was part of the mechanics of the poem. Um, yeah, and something happens at the end. And <laughs> it, the poem doesn't end where it starts, I think, with <laughs> agreeing with that. Yeah. The interesting thing for me is that as the reader of the two translations is that, in fact, in many ways, they're very, very similar. They aren't radically different translations. You know, you are picking through, looking for tiny moments where they, they diverge, well, apart from the title, which is, is quite a, a radical difference. But you can see that behind those two, you know, relatively similar endpoints, there's a whole train of thinking which is entirely individual and unique and about a sort of dialogue with the writer, but also with your own life and your own train of, of, of stuff that you bring to translation. And that's what's, what's really fascinating about it. There's a third translator in this process, and I just want to mention her quickly. On the um, brochure, you'll see that they're the most wonderful illustrations of a girl or a figure disappearing into the sea. And they were done for modern poetry in translation by Livy's sister, Desdemona McCannon, who's a really amazing um, illustrator and came up with this very mysterious and, and, and ambiguous illustration with um, you know, remarkably little preparation really. She's quite extraordinary. She just knew instinctively what the poem was, was saying and it's an act of translation in its own right. At this point, we'd like to open up the floor to you. Um, you've heard a lot about the two translations and you have them in front of you. And it's the point when you can ask questions of the two translators or um, make comments on the poem, and um, we'd very much like that. I think it might help if at this po point um, the lights were brought up. Yes, yes, at the, at the very back there. I guess there's, there's a question about the, the form of the poem. Um, the, both translations have stuck to the, um, the way it's set out in terms of line breaks and, and the number of lines. And to a large extent, the, 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 the information that's contained in each one is contained, the same information is contained in each one of the translation. I don't think it actually needs any less because both translations are very, very beautiful. They don't need, yeah, they, they, as well as following the ideas in the poem, they also follow the, um, um, they follow the original the original poem very, very well. But I wonder if you had any thoughts, not just about, not, not this poem, but generally about sticking to the original line breaks and the information contained in each line or making any kind of changes did you, did you in fact consider that when you were doing your own translations and what you think about doing that generally as translators? We'd like to start. I, I think you would always consider it um, and you would look at the effect that the line breaks are having and you would try and preserve that effect. And I think she's, I mean, in my experience anyway, she's fairly unusual in, in French poetry in that she does use sort of Anglo-American line breaks with delayed information and sort of shock. And it's even more shocking because she's capitalizing the beginnings of the lines. Um, so you have to ensure that that is, is safeguarded, really. And um, So I, I was aware of that, but I don't think it posed any problems, really. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Susan, definitely. And I think the other reason why the line breaks were so important here is because there isn't much punctuation. So the line breaks are sort of, they're doing everything. Yeah, so they're, they're really, they really are meaningful. Yeah. Does that add to the meaning of the poem, the line breaks? Do you think that she uses them to, to reinforce, well, not consciously, but to reinforce the message of the poem? Yes, I think they're an integral part of her sort of her toolkit <laughs> of what she's the way the craft that she's using to um, to 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 put to 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 construct the poem and, and make it work. Yeah. 
Um, I think, I mean, the, a big example is this Sifas at the beginning of the second stanza, um, which I think really only makes sense if it's a throwback to what comes in ahead of it, um, because she, she's not the kind of poet who would use an archaic inversion. Nevertheless, the fact that it's with that on a line makes you think that her shoulder, blade, shoulder blades, instead of sort of coming out as they do when you raise your arms and you're seen from behind, um, are actually being rubbed out or disappearing. That's so interesting, because you just made me think again about that my sort of obsession with the disappearing subject. Again, that's the little girl disappearing, isn't it? When the shoulder blades go in, you know, the little girl disappears. And the sort of more womanly shape appears. Yeah. So all, all of that, yes, I think it's very deliberately done. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Great question. And just um, in front there. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Opportune moment to ask um, about, to take you back to the princess moment, I think you called it. Um, uh, uh, I read the poem as uh, one of the readings is that transition, isn't it, from the girl to the woman, you know, that kind of female sexuality and emerging or, or a moment of being um, ruined in, in the sea. Uh, while she can contemplate it, and almost the inside of her is older than the child shall play on the back. But, but both of you went for the word princess, and I'm really interested in how bound you felt by, by a literal translation of that, that term, because it's such a hinge in the poem, mm. and given how age specific and almost created that is in English, why did you both choose to pick this up? Start with Livy. I decided she was reclaiming that. <laughs> so she was reclaiming the idea of princess as a kind of personal grandeur. So the girl's princess is not the materialistic princess who wears the pink dress that she saw on the telly. Um, <clears throat> she has this kind of deep connection with true sort of sublime grandeur. And this idea of the sea as her dress, I thought was absolutely magnificent and her train, you know, and you could feel the fabric of, this, of the sea on her legs. And, but it was, it, was not, it was not holding her up and she can float on it. And it's something with, with great buoyancy. It's not a restrictive thing. So I felt like it was being reclaimed here. So I went in that direction. <laughs> Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me to replace it. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure what you would replace it with. Um, you know, obviously, princess doesn't have the same connotations for, a, you know, a country with a royal family as it does um, for others. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I hadn't got, maybe I hadn't got brave enough to replace it. But I can't think what one would replace it with, really. Because it's quite touching as well. Yeah. I think that's... It's quite a sort of touching. I mean, when I read it, I, that line stuck out, and I kind of went, oh, you know, that's, that's amazing. You know, that kind of a real recognition of, you know, um, although you're small, you feel big. I suppose it was that, yeah. Thank you. And just down here, yes. Okay. Neil, oh. maybe. Um, I've been, this is more general for us, about translating poetry now, you too. Um, I've been quite involved with translating Norwegian. And it's a wonderful thing in Norwegian that if you're translating a novel by Balzac, uh, it will say on the title page, all the sound parts, all the subjects in Norwegian from translate exactly literal or from the Latin translate. Um, but if you're translating a poem, then you use a completely different word is used. Yen dicta, you would say yen dicta on the title page. And yen dicta means Again, poet. Again, a poet. Uh, or again, composed. So there's a really strong distinction between translating poetry and translating prose. And I just wondered how you both feel as poets, because you are writing a poem as a translator. Actually, you're creating a poem. I don't think I feel I have any more freedom exactly. I, I think um, what you're aware of is that there are many more variables and you can on, only honour some of them. Um, so you've really got to know the poem very well to decide what its priorities are um, before you can make your choice. 
So in a way, you are rewriting the poem because you're always losing some of them. Um, but yeah, if I were writing my own poem, I wouldn't start exactly there. I love that distinction. That's really interesting. I think I agree with Susan here that, that you know, you, there, is, there is a kind of ethical process that you, you, know, you need to really attend to the work in the other language. But then there is a point, I think, yes, I, I think... It really depends, actually. I wonder if it's to do with the extent to which you identify with the work. There's all kinds of negotiations to do with distance as well, I think. Sometimes distance in time, you feel freer. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, there's no doubt that translation is a form of writing. Um, I would say that also for prose. When I was translating Balzac, it felt the same thing, that... Um, you're creating something anew. Um, and it's, it's a very similar process to, to writing, but it does have this very important ethical kind of <laughs> framework. Thank you. Neil. Yeah, I'd just like to say something about viewpoint. It seems to me that the poem is about threshold, it's about lifting. Um, and the poet's own perceptions of going from girlhood to motherhood are part of that. Now, if you say that it's... Um, She's saying someone else is watching. That becomes a bit spooky. If you say it's, it's herself describing the girl, that's what music can be done. But the other interpretation is it could be herself looking back at that time in her own life. So that she could be herself as a girl at that moment of becoming a woman. Because so much of it feels so authentic. I feel as though she's writing about what happened to her. Mm. Yeah. But it is triggered by watching somebody else, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that's what I thought, too. I agree with that. I think there's a kind of wrapping of the, of the women. With, it's like kind of a little, like Russian dolls a bit, you know. <laughs> They're all inside each other. I, I think I, I felt it that way, yeah. Yes, yes, at the very back there. What does that mean? I'd like to say I'm French. <laughs> I really enjoyed this. Um, and it's interesting to see how you approach the text in different uh, uh, viewpoints and sometimes the grammar thinking. Mm. And I must say that, that when I read the poem, I never asked myself any questions about that. For me, regard in the, in the middle of the text is, is the third person and not the imperative. And when I get to the end, the nuage of the person is, is in the shape of the person and not the movie. But that's first reading, automatic. But what I'm wondering is whether if, when you translate things from contemporary poets, do you ever get the chance to know what they really uh, had in mind? And did they really have something in mind or did they create the ambiguity? I mean, you as poets, is that what you do? And I, I'm not, I don't know very much about poetry. Before I pass on to um, Susan and Olivia, I'd like to say that I had a fantastic experience working in Russia with Russian translators who were translating British poetry. And what struck me most of all was their insights into the poems, which I believe were only possible because they weren't coming to them as native speakers and they were examining every single word as, a, as, a, as an etymological unit rather than taking everything for granted in the way that I did with my language. So it's quite interesting to hear you say that because sometimes you do get new insights when you actually step out of the language. But I'll just pass on to uh, who... Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, I did... Um, we didn't have the opportunity to talk with Ariane on the, about the poem, which is often what would happen in these circumstances. I did test out my person <laughs> on a French friend of mine who's a, who's a writer... And she said that that's what we talked about before, that there was the, you know, the first thing that you hear is the person, as in person, and then somebody, and then, but nobody is in the mix, and it is possible as well. That's what she felt. So I, I kind of took that as an authorization to put that in because I felt like I wanted it in my reading of the poem. So I think you're right. And I think with the uh, regard as well, I think, I think I just had gone down a sort of route of a kind of certain reading of the poem, and I kind of you know, was, was bending things at that stage. <laughs> so I sometimes get a bit carried away. <laughs> but, um, the, sorry, was the question about ambiguity? Well, the, yeah, whether poets, I mean, 
not the person. I see what you mean. You can read mm. most of And okay, I read it five minutes ago. But you know, I'd love to ask her. Maybe we could ask her. Phone a friend from the stage. Yes, I mean, if if we get the chance to translate more poems, we will ask her. Um, but we, I think we we were both too honourable to do it on this occasion. <laughs> I, th I think we've run out of time for more questions. When we did this event in Winchester, it, there is a sort of dueling aspect, which is kind of really ridiculous, as you'll all appreciate. But we did say at the end at Winchester, would you like to kind of vote for a translation? And I have to say, not that I'm trying to influence you in any way, the Winchester audience just went, no. We saw they both were, you know, fantastic in different ways, and we just wanted them both to be there. But if you would like to vote, do let me know, because it is a, a duel. Is anyone... No, that's wonderful. I'm very glad. I'm very glad. That's a much, much better option for all of us. And they are so sublime in their own, in their own right. And what's really interesting about them is you, you get a sense of how many translations could exist coming from one source poem and all of them having equal weight and equivalence in very different ways. And that's, that's the sort of thing that makes us all very passionate about translation, the uniqueness and the individualness of it. And at the same time, working within a, a huge discipline because both Susan and Olivia, as you heard, made decisions that were incredibly troubling for them and took a long time and were made with the utmost, as, as Olivia said, kind of ethical considerations, sort of ethical relationship with the writer and wanting to represent them as best they could so that all those things are in there in the mix. And um, I hope you'll agree that they have been absolutely tremendous um, and before I, I ask you to join me in thanking Olivia and Susan and Ariane at a distance, I would just like to say that we have um, copies of Modern Poetry in Translation outside on sale um, on, and a bookshop with books by Susan and um, Olivia on sale. But um, if you are interested in matters of translation, then I would encourage you to take out a subscription to Modern Poetry in Translation because it's, it's kind of our... Our, our bread and butter. It's what we talk about all the time. So you could be doing this 365 days a year if you wanted. So let's just thank Olivia and Susan for their wonderful translations. <laughs> <laughs>